It's Jameson Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. One of my favorite things to do, not surprisingly, is to hang out in wine bars. And one of my uh, favorite places, favorite new places, is a place called Le Caviste here in Seattle. I'm actually standing, uh, bellying up to the bar here at the wine bar and it's located uh, in downtown Seattle. It's on 7th Avenue between Virginia and Stewart, uh, 1919, just to be uh, totally specific. And I'm here with the owner, David Butler. We're hanging out and I'm gonna ask him a bunch of questions about uh, running a wine bar and what's cool, what's hot, what's uh, traditional, and uh, what's weird and wild and crazy. So David, thanks for being on the show. Um, I guess my first question is, this is an all French wine list. Was that an, an easy decision for you to make or something that uh, you thought, well, maybe I wanna have some wines from around the world or Washington? It was pretty easy for me, I have to admit. And mainly because those are the wines I love most. They're the wines I know best. And when it's your place, you can <laughs> do what you want. And so I thought, well, that's gonna be it then. That'll be the one. Sorry, you're beholden to no one here. But you do have one of the emphases that you have that I think is really interesting as I look up at the boards is uh, you've got a lot of Cru Beaujolais uh, by the glass and bottle. Actually, I think you have all 10 of the crews available. Is yeah, that correct? Yeah, all, all 10 crews are available um, in bottle form and then always two uh, by the glass on the board. You know, the real inspiration for this, I spend a lot of time in France and in particular Paris, and... I go to these par- these wine bars in Paris and just for years I just love them, absolutely love them. And they were the inspiration for this. And in those bars, Cru Beaujolais rules supreme. There's plenty of other stuff to drink also, but those wines are represented because they're the wines for this type of environment, you know, um, light, easy drinking wines that go great with charcuterie and things like that. And just, you know. And what is that? I think when you say Beaujolais, a lot of people jump to a lot of conclusions. What, what is Cru Beaujolais and what makes it unique? The Crews of Beaujolais, there are 10 villages inside the area we know as Beaujolais where they make wines of you know, greater distinction. They're held to different standards. Um, you know, Beaujolais Village, delicious. And then the Crews, they have a little more idiosyncratic character. Um, I think the there's a, a bit of a PR uh, storm that blows against Beaujolais because of Beaujolais Nouveau. People think, oh, wait, that's crap. I've heard that's crap. And really, Beaujolais Nouveau is, is a one-night affair, really, where you have a nice, get your drink on and have a nice party to celebrate the, the harvest that's come in. But that's not wine of any real seriousness. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the one-night stand with Beaujolais Nouveau. <laughs> no, no, in fact, that's... That's what she's made for, this one. You know, it's really, I always tell people, I say, you know, if you're, if you're going to argue the merits of Beaujolais Nouveau, you've missed the point entirely. You drink it one night for fun, dance with your neighbor's wife, wake up the next morning and swear you won't do it for another year. Conversely, crew Beaujolais are the kinds of things that, you know, at least in, in Paris, people plug into every day. Belly up to the zinc, have a glass of Fleury or Morgon, and... Uh, Maybe a little ham plate or a little bit of this or that and move on, you know, and it's, a, it's a, just, just a part of everyday life. It's an everyday 
wine. And wine bars are really kind of everyday places. You know, that's the chief difference, I think, between the wine bar as we know it in North America and the wine bar, uh, the wine bars of Western Europe. They're really more quotidien, more everyday places. What, what about, um, so would you say with Cru Beaujolais, would it be fair to say that people who really enjoy Pinot Noir, like that's something that they should be drinking? Um, sure. At least, at least to begin with. I mean, Pinot Noir is something that, you know, you, you can also drink. I kind of would save it. Beaujolais is kind of a, it's almost like a social lubricant and, and sort of a, it's a delightful wine. And, you know, people will, people, I leave myself open to, uh, to criticism for, for saying this because there are makers who, who make, you know, really excellent Cru Beaujolais. Um, but by and large, that, that group of wines I think of as being delightful. And and then then that's it. I mean, if, for for greater depth of character and really you know real contemplative sweep, you go to other regions, and then maybe you go to dinner. You leave the wine bar and you go and you, and you go somewhere else and you and you drop some big, yeah, drink something big. Yeah. And one of the things too with the Beaujolais you offer, um, I'm looking down at this little fridge, and this fridge is full of uh, red wines. It's not at you know like 40 degrees, but can you talk about um, serving certain wines at a, at a cooler temperature and what the uh, rationale is behind that? Sure, um, it's the it's the tradition, and it is certainly held by by people who are more expert than I that wines of Beaujolais and the red wines of the Loire Valley. Um, are best served at cellar temperature, which is you know between about 55 and 60. Which uh, and I have two little refrigerators over there that are dedicated to that purpose. I always swore that when I ran the circus, my Beaujolais, my Cru Beaujolais would be uh, the right temperature and be held there. I think a lot of places um, do this. I mean, Le Pichet puts their keeps theirs in a little ice bath on the bar. Bar Ferdinand keeps theirs in a little ice bath. Um, but those kinds of things fluctuate a lot, and I had the, I had the, uh, the good fortune to be building up from scratch. I thought, well, I'm going to make sure there's a little room for a goofy little refrigerator that I can keep at 55 and and have these things be constant, and uh, and and they and they they show beautifully at that temperature. I mean, they're just they're an absolute. That whole delightfulness is compounded by even more delight at that temperature. Do you find you have to educate people on it? Are, they, are some people a little surprised when they take that first sip? Yeah, some, some folks are surprised. Um, and I usually warn them. I say, hey, if I, and this is kind of a silly thing to say, but if I can read that they might be trying it for the first time, I'll say, now, don't be surprised when this is a little cool. This is traditionally how this is served. And, you know, next time you're in Paris and you're, and you're in some little bar of a, you know, that's how you'll get it too, right? Um, um, but the people who know them and love them and kind of seek out our little spot to drink them know it and are and are pleased that yeah. it comes in at such a low temp. Yeah, well, there's just in general, there's nothing more off-putting than red wine that's any red wine that's served too warm, which happens more often than which oh. happens more often than I, I would like oh to care. Oh my goodness, yeah. No, I think I tell people all the time. I'm like, even if you're drinking something big and like a caor that's served at ambient room temperature ambient room temperature is the room in a castle it should be like i don't know 68 to 71 ish you know 
nothing tastes good at 85 degrees. Yeah. No wine, no matter how great. Mouton Rothschild 82 would still taste like crap at 85 degrees. So unless you live in a castle, uh, make sure you, uh, you uh, maybe sometimes, I mean, I like to just take a red wine and maybe put it in the fridge for like 20 minutes or something like yeah. that, just to like get it a little bit, a little bit more. I, I, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. The wines show a lot better with a little bit of a castle temperature yeah. on them. I think, and I think we, you know, uh, the other half of that is always that uh, in, in the States, we tend to drink our whites too cold. Um, you know, we kind of, we kind of miss it on both ends there and, and certainly wines of, of great distinction like white burgundies are much much better at that same cellar temperature like 55 which seems not quite cold enough for white wine for most people but they're just they're so expressive at that temperature um well, yeah it's like when you drink like super cheap beer like pbr or budweiser or something you want it as like ice cold as possible yeah, to, to dull all of its uh imperfections to say the least yeah. but like when you do that with like a great white burgundy like a exquisite chardonnay i mean you're just dulling you're dulling it so right. you're missing out you take you obliterate all the nuance and all the expression and you know people think well they spent a they spent a pile of money on a on a Poligny Montrachet and they don't understand what the big deal is because it's come to the table much too cold for them. Right. And uh, at Le Gourmand, when I was the sommelier out there, we had uh, in the back we had another refrigerator uh, wine uh, buddy back there dedicated to keeping all the white Burgundies at that temperature because when people were going to spend that kind of money, you know they they should get the full effect of it. You know. So yeah. Well, we've spoken about red and white wines. Let's talk about a category that I love and I know you love too is um, rosé. Um, <laughs> what uh, a couple things actually. One time I came in here a couple months ago and uh, I think we and I'll, I'll put myself in that have a mania of drinking like this year's rosés and the you know the, the freshest rosés, the ones just off the boat. But I had um, a rosé from uh, Sancerre that wasn't uh, 2013. I don't think it was a 2012. It was a 2011. Can you talk about? I mean. Can you, uh, are people like me too prejudiced over uh, vintage of rosé and I mean, are those things that improve with the year or two or, or change in a way that you find compelling? Oh, they certainly can. And this is, this is the kind of the funny thing about um, uh, rosés. They aren't all, kind of all, they're all created equal in a way and then they also aren't. Some, ro some rosés I think benefit from time. I love Sancerre rosé on release. It's fresh and bright with all this tart red fruit. and But Sancerre Rosé, for instance, is one of those rosés that if you carry it a couple of years, some of those high, that high-toned red fruit sort of leaves the stage and that minerality comes to the foreground. You know, you don't want to turn it into a, you don't want to turn it into a, uh, some big egg-headed wine project. But still, if you, if you can, I mean, I, I buy myself a few Sancerre Rosés, like, like half a dozen every summer, and I drink three of them, and I hold three of them into the next year and start drinking them with oysters because the minerality is so bright. And certainly Rosés from Marcinet or Bandol Rosés have length. You know, inexpensive, you know, $10 Provençal Rosés, drink now. Um, which isn't to say that they'd be awful a year later, but they probably are better at their at their freshest. But rosés from some of these other areas have have length. 
Yeah. I also think what some people have told me too is that um, you know, like the rosés, like they come from France or wherever or uh, Europe, they get off a boat, they get on a truck, they get here, they're in the warehouse, they're instantly out the door, and these wines can be a little unsettled too. So in some ways, it's almost you know advantageous to have some of these rosés, let them chill out for a while. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we you know we talk about um, the shockiness. This is kind of a wine term when when things come in like that and. And rosé, because of the demand, I mean, as soon as the sun shines in Seattle, yeah. you know, a- April, people are, I mean, this April, people were at the bar going, do you have rosé? You know, and you're thinking, dude, it's 61. Sure, the sun is shining, but it's not really rosé time. But they want it, and purveyors know that, and you're right, it it, it gets off the truck, you know, off the boat, to the truck, to the warehouse, and to the place in a matter of days. And really, you should, ideally, you'd like things to sit a bit, and yeah. I think that that makes perfect sense to me. So what are some of the, um, you know, looking at the wine, the by the glass list right now, what are some things that you're kind of really excited about, some unheralded regions that you're offering or things that you're trying to turn people on to that go beyond kind of the usual suspects of, of French wine? I think there are some really fun areas um, that don't get a lot of play. Um, Marciac in the southern part of France, right next to the Auvergne, makes a really fascinating wine um, made from a grape that we don't hear much about called Fair Servidou. Um, and it grows in iron-rich soils, orange soils, like Canyonlands orange. And so it has this, it, the wine is redolent of that. And it's, it's a fascinating glass of wine for people. And delicious. It's not just, it's not just interesting like a bug. It's actually pleasurable, right? Um, and, and uh, a little wine from the Savoie, the Savoie Mondeuse. Um, we see a lot of white wine from the Savoie area, mostly Jacquere, which is kind of a related to the Sauvignon Blanc, crisp Alps white wine. But this Mondeuse is the one of the red grapes they grow up there. And this has been a real revelation. I think I've poured through cases and cases of this stuff. It's just really fun. And, most people have never heard of it. I don't know that I'd tasted more than a couple of Savoie Rouges in my life before this hit town and you know things like that. I think part of the fun of running a place like this is being able to taste everything that comes to town and uh, make the acquaintance of things that are pretty interesting and new even for me, you know. I mean, I think uh, we've been this week we've been running a special on a patrimonio, which is uh, Corsican from the Isle of Corsica, the northern tip, um, really tobacco-y, love, lovely wine, and I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've had one or two patrimonios in my day either. So you just, you know, it's just fun to see what drifts into the net. Um, I'm more comfortable tasting things and finding things in areas that I have a great deal of experience with because then I know I'm getting things that are really faithful to their region and whatnot. But um, but it's also pretty fun to go uh, to go exploring as well. Let's talk about food for a minute. I mean, you offer uh, cheese, of course. You would offer cheese at a wine bar, but um, uh, how much do you worry about, or con- are you concerned about, you know, matching wine and cheese, or do you just give people like, here's a plate of cheese to enjoy? Because I find, um, I mean, for me, one of the things I'm not a huge red wine and cheese fan. I'm more like white wine or sparkling wine with cheese. Is that something where people are, are asking you to match match these two, or do you? Uh, what's your philosophy on wine and cheese? Well, I'm of two minds. Um, people 
People want a cheese plate, they'll look up and we usually we have four to five cheeses that are available by the type, by the ounce. And they'll say, we just want all, you know, an ounce of all five. They, they, they just want a platter and they're just eating together. And that's really fun. I've, I think that's one of my favorite parts about watching this room work sometimes is when the whole wine thing seems se secondary to the, to the social thing. People are here to meet their friends. And, yeah. you know, it's, wine can be the primary thing for me, but I like it when it's not necessarily the primary thing for them. But then there are also folks who see a cheese up there and they say, oh, I love, you know, that goat cheese, you know, the shabby chou de Poitou. What, what should I drink with that? Now, if that's the question, then I'll tell them what they should drink with it. And it may be a little bit weird for them. They may, they may not have expected it. Like in that case, it would be Sancerre Blanc, right? Crisp, dry, white wine from the Loire Valley. It's just it's magic with goat cheese. Um, or the Epoise that's on the board tonight, um, best with white burgundy. You know, and uh, but unless someone asks, gee whiz, what should I drink with this? I'm not likely to try and insinuate myself. I think uh, that whole uh, I like to divorce this little place from that necessarily. I don't want to make it about that. If, if it gets too fussy, the whole I think the whole wine bar thing collapses if it becomes too fussy. It should be more human than that. Yeah, you don't want people to feel like they kind of have to do work when they come here, yeah. you know, like, oh, I got to get this cheese and this wine and I better match this up instead of just kind of eating and drinking and chatting with your neighbors or your Yeah, no, I wouldn't, life. you know, I mean, all, 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 all deference to my colleagues, I wouldn't want this place to turn into some weird egghead wine joint where everyone's like sitting around discussing wine all night long. That's not what happens here. I mean, right. and that's not what happens in France or Italy or Spain in their wine bars, right? It, people meet their friends there, and maybe there's some brief discussion about what they might be drinking or want to drink, but then, then they're off. Then they're, then they're talking about all the other stuff in their lives, what books they're reading, what travels they're going to, you see that film, you know, what happened to your boyfriend? You know, yeah. He was a jerk, you know, all. That's what takes over, and that's, that's, what, that's the way it should be. So, um, what are you drinking when, let's say you're not here and you're, uh, you leave the world of France, what are some of the things that interest you or do you just, or do you just live to drink French wine? Well... Or do you drink beer when you're outside? No, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really like beer. I like, a, I, I, I like the occasional Guinness, but I don't, I don't drink beer much. You know, uh, I like to make the joke, and it's not so much a joke. I like to say, I'm an old man now. There's only so many bottles of wine left in my life. And so I drink what I know and love, and it's, it tends to be French pretty much all the time. Um, it's not a religion or anything like that. I just, that's where my palate goes. When I was a younger man in the wine game, I tasted the world, and that's cool. Um, but I, my focus zeroed in, and my love zeroed in, and that's where I go all the time, it seems. France isn't a bad place to end up. No, no. But then again, but I also throw myself at the mercy of uh, uh, my colleagues at other restaurants um, because I'm not, I'm not as current on Italian or Spanish wines. And so if I'm at Spinasse, I'm like, hey, this is what I'm looking for. You know, I don't, I, I, I you know, you got to learn to trust the people who have the product, I think. Um, Let's talk about, uh, okay, so we've done red, white, rosé, uh, sparkling wine. Um, we definitely have a couple of sparkling wines by the glass, some really nice champagnes. Actually, Vilmar is one of my all-time favorites, yeah. um, which I love, love, I love. I love that wine. In fact, 
I make the people always ask me about it because on our boards things are really inexpensive here and uh, in the in the analogous world of uh, the French wine bar probably nothing that expensive would be on the board there um, but it's my favorite champagne and there's a there's a term in boxing when a fighter punches above his weight Vimar definitely punches above its weight it it drinks like something twice its price um, it's pretty fantastic so it's on my board because I love it so yeah the American dude in me says Vilmart no probably <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, well, what I like about it is when you talk about punching above its weight, I mean, it reminds there's a champagne that's more expensive and I love too called Krug. And um, what they both have in common is that uh, the, the, the still wine is aged in, uh, in barrel and it gets really rich, but it still has that kind of racy thing that I like about champagne. It's got that kind of nice yin-yang thing to it. So I, yeah, I love it. I love the texture of it. It's rich. It's delicious. Oh, sure. If money were no object, I, I would, I'd cross over to Krug in a minute, you know. But then again, if somebody were to say, "Hey, as a thank you, I'm going to buy you a case of Krug," I'd say, "Hey, you know what? Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you buy me four cases of the Vimar instead?" Okay. You know, <laughs> since money is an object. But yeah, those are they. Uh, that style is just beautiful, and it's another one of those wines that, uh, you know, out of the refrigerator is is all fine and 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 wonderful, refreshing, you know, champers, but. As the Vimar or the Krug starts to come up in temperature a little bit, that expression, that that chalkiness, it's it's pretty remarkable. What's really uh, I've talked to some sommeliers. Two things that I think is uh, uh, sort of um, raises an eyebrow. One is decanting champagne, mm-hmm. and the other is uh, they. I've talked to some people who enjoy drinking champagne when it's flat, which to me sounds insane. Is that is, have you ever entertained any of those ideas? No, you know, decant, it's, uh, let's see, decanting, I think, makes sense with uh, old wines. Now, I don't know about champagne. I would, I would, my personal feeling is I would want to pull away from, again, that sort of fussiness. Yeah. That's just, that can, to me, that's the, that's the wrong ethos for that. Um, it might be different if you had, you know, I don't know, a 1947 something or other, and maybe I, I still think I'd probably drink it out of the bottle. Yeah. Um, drinking it flat just doesn't make sense to me. The, 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 the product is made to, to be effervescent, right? This is, the, this is its point. It'd be like, instead of going to the theater, I'm going to look at a painting of the play that was performed, right? Yeah. It just doesn't make sense, yeah. right? This is a product to be had this one way. That's the way I would want my interface to be. What about how you serve sparkling wine in Champagne? There are a lot of places like uh, when I go to Ambonet in um, uh, Portland, and uh, you know they like to serve Champagne in like a, a, a white Burgundy or a red Burgundy glass. Um, do you do you serve your Champagne and sparkling wine here in flutes, or do you also like to use just say like a white wine glass or something with more of a uh, um, tulip shape? I you know the funny thing is I serve it in flutes, and. I drink it in flutes most of the time because it's a it's a thing I have uh, at the start of dinners out with friends and things. It's in fact, if I were if I were ever made king, that would be one of my my first laws I would enact. Would that would that if you were going to dinner with three or more people, it would be compulsory that you start with sparkling wine yeah. as a thing. It's just, I think it's fantastic, but because it has that sort of celebratory aspect. 
Um, and I don't like getting my getting 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 a point in my head over the shape of glassware. I think that that mistakes the shadow for the prey. If I can borrow a Frenchman wow. a Frenchman's term. Wow. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank and and thanks to George Bataille who uh, who uh, you first used that term. Um, I it's just this is the wrong place to focus. However, when I'm tasting, you know, I, I do I taste probably I don't know 50 to 70 wines a week during the day at Caviste here, um, I taste out of regular glassware. I don't go get a flute when somebody opens a bottle of champagne, right? It's um, to make a kind of educated assessment. I think it's probably better to have that, that extra, uh, that extra bit, that extra cavern for your nose, the extra all. Well, David, thanks for uh, letting me come down to Lake Caviste. And uh, folks, go to lakecavistseattle.com to find out more. And if you live in Seattle or in Seattle, come down to uh, 7th Avenue between Virginia and Stewart and stop by and uh, enjoy some. Uh, well, the show is called Wine Without Worry. And so I appreciate you uh, talking about French wine and uh, being unfussy about it and having mm. that as your ethos. I think. Thanks, man. Yeah. It was great. It was great having you here. Yeah. And I love seeing you. Okay, well, thank you. You don't have to say that just because you're a guest on No, it's the, the truth. It's, yeah, it's the actually compulsory. Truth. It's actually written into my, my guest agreement. It says it right here. Yeah, it, it does. I love seeing you in the place. Yeah, very good. You read it, you read it much better in rehearsal, but I'll, I'll take it uh, fine on, on tape. Thanks again, David. Thank you. <laughs>